Let's look tonight at a miracle of Jesus. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, beginning with verse 11. Luke 7, 11 through 17. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, when unhappily we may fill, be filled with doubts, which we pray will be rare, indeed we would ask that it would not be, but when it does happen, turning to the Gospels, and seeing the Lord Jesus, seeing him raise the dead, heal the sick, seeing him in his ministry, seeing him as his heart grows sorrowful even unto death as he moves to the cross, his resurrection day, ascension, seeing him in the Gospels, immediately strengthens our souls. And we are very thankful that the Word of God indeed is a book of dramatic interest that includes not only apocalypse and vision and dream, and not only epistle, but also the Gospels. And as we turn now to this Gospel narrative, we ask that the Holy Spirit will help us to see the mercy of our God through Jesus Christ our Lord that those of us who sorrow may be encouraged by the truth as it is in Jesus, and the recognition that our Savior, even in this miracle, points to his own and our resurrection from the dead. That those who may be here who are dead in trespasses and sins and who are not alive in Christ will spiritually be raised as the Holy Spirit uses the simplicity of this word and we pray, Father, that we may indeed be humbled under the content of the Word of God to receive it for what it really is, the very Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and let's stand together. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 11. This is the Word of the Lord. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord <clears throat> saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ is proven and demonstrated in his miracles. In a dying servant that Jesus 
heals from a distance as he did in the prior miracle, the healing of the centurion's servant. And here it is seen even more remarkably in removing a widow's sorrow and raising her dead son back to life. On the road to Nain, we see first that life meets death. Nain, the southern part of Galilee, nestled in the mountainous country on the slopes of Little Hermon, would be good for you later to get your map out in the back of your Bible and to see where this miracle took place in time and space in a real place, geography in a real time in history. And there's a burying ground about 10 minutes walk east of Nain. Edersheim, the great Jewish Christian scholar who wrote The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah and many other worthwhile books, said on the path leading to it, the Lord of life for the first time burst open the gates of death. And so we have here the prince of life meeting vile, ugly death, the result of the fall of Adam. And there is a woman's only son, dead, being carried out of the village. And when a funeral took place in those days, the procession would pass by and everyone would be expected to join in, including the Lord Jesus and his disciples who have come into the town. Usually burial was as soon as possible after death for obvious reasons. The burial procession was moving to the outside of the city. And Jesus and his disciples meet the procession just outside the city gate. And this was this woman, this poor woman's only son. She had no other. Literally, the Greek translated would be only begotten son of his mother. And there you see the pathos, and I hope you feel the pain, and you care, and you sense her longing, and her heartbreak, and her sorrow, and her extreme grief. The Jewish approach to death would engender fear, not comfort. A profound sense of uncertainty surrounded then and surrounds now the Jewish approach to death. Edersheim again in his sketches of Jewish social life points to two rabbis. One was called the Light of Israel who burst into tears on his deathbed. This is one of the great rabbis. He burst into tears on his deathbed. He trembled and wept out of fear of meeting God. And he said, there are before me two ways, one to paradise and the other to hell. And I know not which of the two ways I shall have to go. Then the other rabbi died, lifting up both hands, protesting that he had never broken one of the laws of God. And so, for one, you have utter hopelessness, and the other, other you have presumption. I wonder if that's true of anyone here. Utter hopelessness as you face death, or complete and utter presumption. All will be well with me, whether I know Jesus Christ or not. I'm a good person, perhaps you think. I've never broken the law of God. If that's you, you've never come to understand your heart. 
The mother would have torn her upper garments, mourning with lament. A mournful procession was there, hired mourners playing their melancholy flutes, and the crowd would have become larger and larger. And the text tells us, and she was a widow. Typically, widows were poor, often exploited, unable to find justice in courts of law, they were oppressed. You remember, for example, in Luke chapter 18, the the woman who could not get justice, but she continued to be importunate. And Jesus uses that as an example of how we must be importunate in prayer. Or you can go to the first chapter of the book of James, and you can see what how widows were treated in that culture. It speaks, it really does speak of the wonderful transformation of the gospel that after the first resurrection, the early church cared for widows and also established an order of widows who were both cared for and had responsibilities in the church. Now, as a widow, this son would have been her only means, the only means of her future provision. She is indeed now completely destitute, mourning for the death of her son, but undoubtedly not forgetting that in that culture and in that society, now she is a destitute woman. And so Jesus and his disciples arrived. This woman and other women would have been in front because the rabbi said, since woman brought sin into the world, that when there was a funeral, the woman was to be out front. The official mourning would have gone on for 30 days, 30 days of hopelessness. 30 days of fear, no joy. Yes, there would be a resurrection in the last day, but who knows how he will stand in that day. Do you picture the scene? Perhaps you've seen funeral services in the Near East on news reports. Wild, unbridled emotion. Well, something like that is what you should picture here. Do you feel her pain? Do you see her need? Well, we move on, and secondly, we see our Lord's omnipotent compassion. We read in verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And if I were translating this verse, I would translate it something like, His insides moved for her. He was so deeply compassionate. He hurt for her on the inside. Do not weep. Cease weeping. Is he insensitive? No, he's not insensitive. It's a hopeful command because Jesus is about to act. Jesus is about to display his power. Jesus is about to do something. But how strange this must have sounded. It's cruel if he cannot address it, but he can address it. And God's mercy is shown through Jesus Christ in this and in every miracle he performed. Even though the miserable are the objects of his mercy, misery beheld is not the cause of his mercy. He is merciful because he is mercy. He is merciful because he is merciful. God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, calling himself the merciful God. And now the Son shows the heart of the Father He who has seen me has seen the Father. And here we see the Father's merciful heart for his people. Do you know that God is rich in mercy? Have you experienced his mercy? He required nothing of her. 
He didn't say to her, now this is what I want you to do in order that I can help you. This is what I want you to do before I raise your son from the dead. This is what I want you to do in order that you can merit the mercy that I'm about to show. We never merit the mercy of God. We never merit his grace. It is all his merit. It is all his doing. And so he intervenes and he says to her, do not weep because Jesus is in control He is in control of hopeless circumstances, and this was a hopeless situation. And he sympathizes with those who sorrows. He weeps with those who weeps. And he continues as our great high priest to sympathize with us in our sorrow. Do we not read in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and following, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the God of mercy. This is the mediator. This is the one who continues to intercede for us with omnipotent, omnipotent compassion. Do you hear it? He intercedes for you, believer, with omnipotent compassion. Did you notice the use of the word Lord in verse 13? And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And can we doubt that Luke has chosen this word with special intention because he is a post-resurrection writer? He's writing about this event, but it cannot be far from his mind that he's writing about the one who died for the sins of his people and who rose from the dead and who ascended on high, who intercedes and who is coming again. You remember how it's put there in the book of Acts in chapter 2, when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." And so he stands here as the Lord, the God of mercy, in front of death, meeting this poor, destitute, desolate woman's deepest heart's needs. And surely he does that after his resurrection, after his resurrection from the dead, as he is declared to be the Lord of the living and the dead. Which leads us to the third thing we see in this beautiful text. Jesus' authority over death. Jesus went to the bier. Perhaps today we would say he stopped the hearse. And it's interesting, by the way, that on every occasion that this particular verb is used of Jesus approaching, proserkamai, every time it's used in the Gospels before some miraculous event. It precedes an authoritative act on his part. He's about to do something here. He was expected to join in the procession. He does far better than that, doesn't he? He touches the hearse. He stops the beer. 
But in Numbers 19.11, we are told, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. But he would not be defiled by death. Why? Because he is the living God, because he is the Lord of life, and he is Lord over death. He is the Lord of death. Hebrews 2.14, he came that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That's why he came. And those carrying the beer stopped. They could not have guessed what would happen. Jesus shows his authority by raising this dead son of this widowed woman, by raising this boy again to life. Verse 14, he says, young man, it's evocative. It's a noun of direct address. He's addressing a dead body. What must some of them thought, have thought, Young men, I say to you, rise up. And the verb is an aorist imperative. It is a command. He has this face-to-face encounter with this dead boy, looks him in the face, and he says, Young man, I'm commanding you to get up, to be raised. And Edersheim so beautifully says again, one word of power burst inwards the sluices of Hades and outflowed once again the tide of life. This is sovereign command. This is from the depths of his calm, completely in control, sovereign heart. This is majestic authority. And it is also a deeply personal command personal, as he loves this woman, as he loves her son. And the young man rose up and began to speak. And Jesus, note in verse 15, gave him to his mother. I don't know about you, but I find this to be a beautiful narrative. A widow's only son, her hope for future sustenance. Can you enter now into her joy as previously In the prior part of the text, you entered into her sorrow. How could Jesus do this? He could do this because he is life himself. He could do this because he is the God-man, anointed by the Spirit of God to fulfill the Father's will who sent him into this world to redeem and save, to crush the devil and his works, to destroy death forever. He can do this because... He will rise from the dead. The promise of resurrection underlay all of the miracles of the New Testament, every one of them. And he can do this because we will rise. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 and following, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And in verse 20, that glorious verse, but Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He can raise this son to life for all of these reasons and more. Well, then fourthly, we see the results of the miracle in verses 16 and 17. Fear seized them, and they all glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Fear 
Again, we have here an aorist at once there was fear. And the verb literally, fear, took all. So fear seized them, ESV. Very good translation. And God is glorified, and again, that's an imperfect tense, which means that they started to glorify God, talking about it, and they kept on doing it. They couldn't stop talking about what God had done through Jesus. And they declared him to be a prophet. I mean, after all, the Old Testament background that would have come to them that they had read and heard in the synagogue over and over and over again would have been 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4, the raising of young dead boys. Indeed, the language gave the boy back to his mother is just that of 1 Kings 17.23 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Yes, but he also was more than just a prophet. He was the final prophet prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, but he was much more. No Old Testament prophet raised the dead with a simple word, but he did. Prophet? Yes. But also he is our priest, and he is our king, and he is the Lord of glory. And God visits his people in the display of his power, just as we were told in the very first part of Luke's gospel. Do you remember? In verses 68 and 78. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, saying Zechariah. And in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, and the sunrise visited this poor woman and her son and the entire village and all of God's people through this passage, even until now. Indeed, he has displayed his power. Do you not sense here the Lord's invitation to the defenseless? To some Christian here who seems defenseless, weak in your heart, in circumstances beyond your control, do you not see the invitation here to trust in this great prophet who also is your priest and your king? Well, that leads us to consider finally, why this miracle and what does it say to us? Well, first, intentionally to repeat myself, it says to us resurrection. That should be obvious on the face of things whether it be the resuscitation of the dead that points ahead to Jesus' resurrection or his own or our own, resurrection is essential to the gospel. It is not something dispensable. Quadratus, the Antonicene father, addressing the emperor Hadrian in 125 AD, made this statement. As he writes to the emperor, he says, Our Savior's works, moreover, were always present, for they were real, consisting of those who had been healed of their diseases, those who had been raised from the dead, who were not only seen whilst they were being healed and raised up, but were afterwards constantly present. Nor did they remain only during the sojourn of the Savior on earth, 
but also a considerable time after his departure. And indeed, some of them have survived even down to our own times. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about those who had seen the risen Christ? The Christian faith is based squarely upon history. Indeed, over 500 at one time saw him. The only reason for doubting these miracles is the sin of the human heart that does not want to submit to God's Word. That's first. This miracle speaks to us of the power, the reality of resurrection. And then secondly, the miracles of Jesus were signs that the kingdom of God, that is his saving rule, has arrived in Jesus Christ. Resurrection spiritually of the sinner to life, those dead in trespasses and sins about whom there is much mourning. He put his hand to the beer. He told this young man to rise up. He can raise the spiritually dead to life. And especially the resurrection miracles point ahead to the promise that Christ redeems from all evil and from all of the effects of the fall, and that there will be a restoration of the fullness of life and a recreation, a new heavens and a new earth that will surely come when Jesus splits the sky in his return and raises the dead. And then thirdly, every believer in Christ, we who sorrow in this world now, we who weep now, we who experience within the depths of our souls sorrow that seems, it seems impossible to be removed, everyone who knows that kind of weeping within his soul should take heart that Jesus has promised in this miracle that what he did for this poor widow, he will do for you, but even grander, even greater. For if you will, for a moment, turn to Revelation 21 and read with me the first four verses. For here we have the promise that he will do for all of his sorrowing people, what he did for this woman and more. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. I ask you, who can dry tears the way Jesus can dry tears? 
I ask you, who will dry tears the way Jesus will dry tears from every eye of each of his redeemed people? Amen.